The story of it was picked this up in Germany, a small town. They had one Catholic church and one synagogue, so one priest and one rabbi. And one day the priest decided he'd like to do something nice for the rabbi without telling him. Because the rabbi's car was rather dirty, he decided to wash the rabbi's car. He's doing this, and the rabbi happened to look out on the second-story flat, and he saw this black robe priest splashing this water all of his car. The next day, the priest looked out his window, and he noticed the rabbi approaching the, the uh, car the priest would drive. And the rabbi's hand was a uh, saw, and he saw several inches of the tailpipe of the, the, of the priest's car. The priest came out running, Rabbi, Rabbi, what are you doing to my car? Rabbi said, yesterday I saw you baptizing my car. Now I'm circumcising your car. <laughs> the second one, a man went to see his rabbi. I picked this up in Jerusalem. and said, Rabbi, I really believe my, my wife is trying to poison me. Rabbi says, I find this very difficult to believe. I suspect you had not one of your arguments that you often have. You said things you should not have. She said things she did not mean. Tell you what, you wait here in the office. I'll go talk to your wife. It shouldn't take very long. I'll get the whole thing straightened out. The rabbi left, didn't come back for many, many hours. In fact, it was already pitch black outside when he came back to his office, and the man was still waiting for him. And he told the man, I just spent hours and hours and hours talking to your wife. Well, to be more honest, I spent hours and hours and hours just listening to your wife. Take the poison. <laughs> Our topic on the screen on your outline is the basis of the second coming, the study deals with the understanding the exact issue involved concerning the return of the Lord. Here's one of the distinctions between the rapture of the church and the second coming for Israel. The rapture has no preconditions whatsoever. It can happen any moment of time. And that's part of God's program for the body of the Messiah. But the actual second coming to the earth is part of God's program for Israel. And that is, has, has a specific uh, precondition to it. Before we can deal with the issue of what is the precondition to the second come, we need to answer another question first. And the first question is, what exactly was the issue when they rejected him? And once we understand the issue involved in the rejection of the Messiah, we'll be able to understand why there's this one precondition to the second coming. And so turn your Bibles now to Matthew chapter 12. Now, within Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, the Messiah goes public with his ministry in chapter 4. From chapter 4 through chapter 12, he's going all over Israel, and he's, he's um, proclaiming his Messiahship. He's offering to Israel at the same time the Messianic kingdom. But no such kingdom could be established if he first owned him to be that Messianic king. And to confirm his messiahship, he performs many miracles, signs, and wonders, including those miracles never been done before. He performs miracles that others have done, therefore there would not be absolute evidence of his messianic claims, but when he does certain miracles never done before, 
then that becomes uh, something more crucial. And in John chapter 15, verse 24, John 15, verse 24, the, uh, Yeshua said to the apostles, if I merely repeated miracles others have done, then they would have, no, have excuse for not believing me. But since I've done things never done before, then they are without excuse in their uh, disbelief. Now, a while before the Messiah came on the scene, the rabbis separate miracles into two categories. In the first category would be miracles anyone would be able to perform if he was empowered by the Spirit of God to do so. But in the second category of miracles, which were known as Messianic miracles, miracles only Messiah would be able to do. And there were three main miracles in the second category. As you go to the Gospels and pay attention, you will notice we perform any one of those three special miracles. The Jewish reaction is always very different. Then we perform miracles of the second category. These were not messianic, but these were. And the first of these miracles is the healing of a Jewish leper. The second is that a healing of someone that went blind, that, that uh, was born blind, not someone that went blind, but one was uh, born blind. But the third one is going to concern us in the study. And look at verse 22 of Matthew 12. Then was brought unto him one possessed with a demon blind and dumb, and he healed them insomuch the dumb man spake and saw. Here we're dealing with a demon that was cast out, but the uniqueness of this demon is that he was able to cause the person that he engrolled to be a mute, to be dumb, to be a mute, so he could not speak. Now, the act of casting out demons by itself was not unusual in the Jewish world of this day and age. Even the rabbis and the Pharisees and their disciples also practiced frequently the exorcisms of demons. But because, but in, but in Pharisaism, the, in order to be able to cast a demon, they had to use a specific ritual which had three distinctive steps. Number one, they had to establish communication with the demon. When a demon speaks, he uses the vocal cords of the person he controls. Secondly, after establishing communication with the demon, he would then have to find out the demon's name. And then thirdly, once he knew what the demon's name was, could he use the name to, and command the demon to go out? And this was the three basic steps of the ancient Jewish procedure. There are other occasions when he himself uses that procedure, as in Mark chapter 5. In Mark 5, he was confronted by a demoniac. And so he asked the question, what is your name? Answer, my name is Legion, for we are many. In that context, he used the traditional Jewish approach. Now, because of that three-stage procedure, there was this one kind of demon they could never cast out. Because with this kind of a demon, there was a dumb or mute demon. There was no establishing communication with the demon, no way of finding out this demon's name. And so within the framework of Pharisaism, it was viewed impossible to cast the demon out. But, the, but because when Messiah comes, he'll be able to, uh, to um, authenticate his claims by even casting out these types of demons. And so in verse 22, that's the kind of demon the Messiah cast out. And so notice what, uh, the reaction among the Jewish multitudes in verse 23. The multitudes were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? As you know, that's a messianic title. 
And, then, and by this point of time, he had already cast out many different kinds of demons, never raised this question before. When he cast out all those other types of demons, the question he raised then was, by what authority does he cast out demons? But now we're casting out a dumb demon, the nature of the question changes. Not by what authority, but is he the son of David? And while the multitudes are willing to raise the question, what they're not willing is to simply answer the question for themselves. And throughout our Jewish history, the people have tended to labor or be labor under a complex that will call the leadership complex. Whichever way the leaders go, the people were sure to follow. And to this day, when we witness to Jewish contacts, eventually they tend to raise the same objection. If this Jesus was the Messiah, how come our rabbis don't believe on him? And that would be the leadership complex. So they want to raise the question, but what they're not willing to do is simply to answer the question for themselves. They're looking to the leaders, spiritual leaders, the Pharisees, to answer that question for them. And the Pharisees now have only one of two options. The first option would be to proclaim him to be the Messiah. This they don't want to do because of his previous rejection of the authority of Pharisaic Judaism. The second option is to reject him, but if they choose to reject him, they also have to explain how come he can do what they have been teaching only Messiah will be able to do. And in, verse 20, and in verse 24, they go with the second option. And when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This man does not cast out demons, but by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. And they reject his messiahship, but then to explain away how he can do things which no one else could do, how he could do things which they themselves have been teaching only Messiah be able to do, they come up with their own explanation that he was possessed, but not by a common demon. He's possessed by the prince of demons, Beelzebub. And Beelzebub is a combination of two Hebrew words, meaning the Lord of the flies. And this became the official Pharisaic basis for rejecting him. He's not the Messiah on the grounds of being demonized by the prince of demons. Now, this is not only found here in the Gospels, it's also found in two important passages in the Jewish Talmud. One passage says that while he was still living in Egypt, he made these cuts into the skin of his flesh. He inserted into the skin the four Hebrew letters comprising God's own name. And um, by means of insertion of these four letters making up God's Hebrew name, that's how he was able to perform the miracles which he performed. A little passage says that, well, that um, the reason they had to execute him on Passover, though it contradicted Jewish law to have executions on the Passover, had to do with the nature of his crime. And that was seducing Israel by practicing sorcery. Seducing Israel by practicing sorcery. There's a close connection between sorcery and demonism. And this indeed became the official basis for rejecting him on the basis of being uniquely demonized by a special demon. Messiah responded by pointing out two things. First of all, in verses 25 to 29, he points out that this accusation cannot be true because it would mean a division in Satan's kingdom. But then secondly, in verses 30 through 37, 
he now pronounces a special judgment upon that generation of Israel for being guilty of a very unique sin, the unpardonable sin or the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And because this sin is what he calls it unpardonable, a judgment is set down against this specific generation, a judgment that cannot be removed or alleviated, a judgment that finally hits this generation in the year A.D. 70 with the Roman destruction of the city and the temple. Now, we should make it very clear exactly what the unpardonable sin is in the context where it is found, and this is the only context you'll find this sin mentioned. You'll find also a mark and look, but the context is the same. And we can define it based upon the context in this way. It is the national rejection by Israel of the Messiahship of Yeshua, the Messiahship of Jesus while he was present on the grounds of being demonized. I repeat, the national rejection by Israel of the Messiahship of Yeshua, of Jesus, while he was here present on the grounds of being demonized. Now, from that definition, I want to make four ramifications. The first ramification is that this is a national sin. It is not an individual sin. Individual members of that day and that generation could and did escape the judgment by becoming believers. One of the best examples is the Apostle Paul. It's not, a, it's not a sin that any individual could commit today. It was never individual to begin with. And the Bible makes one point very clear. Regardless of what sin anyone commits, every sin is forgivable to that individual that will come to the Messiah on the grounds of faith, on the grounds of Messiah's blood. But um, So it's forgivable to individuals, but not forgivable to nation as a whole. And so to summarize, this is a national sin, not an not individual sin. Second ramification, this is a sin that is unique to the Jewish generation of Messiah's day. It cannot be applied to all subsequent Jewish generations, as, for example, Roman Catholicism is often taught. It was to this specific generation that he visibly, physically came, uh, as this was Messiah, and, his, and he came um, proclaiming his Messiahship and offering to this generation the Messianic Kingdom. It was this generation that rejected him, and therefore it is this generation that now will face the consequences of the unpardonable sin. So to summarize, this is a sin that is unique to Jewish generation of his day, not applicable to all subsequent Jewish generations. The third ramification is that while this is a national sin, no other nation could be guilty of this sin because he's not now visibly, physically present with any other nation offering himself as that nation's Messiah. And um, there is only one covenant people, and that's the people of Israel. And so again, to summarize, no other nation could be guilty of this sin. And then fourthly, the fourth ramification, the commitment of the unpardonable sin by this generation for this generation means two things. Number one, it, he, withdraws, he now withdraws the offer of the Messianic kingdom. They've lost out on the opportunity to see the kingdom established in their day. It will someday be re-offered to a future Jewish generation that will accept it, 
the Jewish generation living in the tribulation. But this generation lost out on the privilege of having the kingdom established in their day. And so to summarize, the kingdom offers now rescinded and withdrawn. And the second thing it means is now this generation is guilty under a special divine judgment. It is a physical judgment. They'll finally come in the year 70, 40 years after the rejection, with the Roman destruction of the city and the temple, and the worldwide dispersion of the Jewish people throughout the world. And, um, this, and so this is simply something very unique. What's happening here is that a specific generation crossed the point of no return. And the God's dealing with his covenant people. Whenever a specific generation goes beyond the point of no return, no amount of repenting can change the fact of the coming physical judgment. Now, this is the third time this event has occurred. The first time is detailed in the book of Numbers, chapters 13 and 14, the sin of Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea was a beautiful oasis which is right on the border of the Promised Land. And what I dealt with yesterday is from that oasis that Moses sent out 12 spies to who came back 40 days later. And only two of those goods of those spies were believing spies that declared we have God on our side, we can take the land. But 10 men said, no, we cannot take the land. They're too strong for us and too many for us. As we pointed out, there was the attempt act of rebellion against Aaron and Moses. The two men were almost killed in the mob scene till God intervened. But at that point, the Exodus generation reached the point of no return. And God withdrew the offer of the promised land from that generation, as in this chapter, he withdraws the offer of the kingdom from this generation. And now the extra generation will have to continue wandering in the desert till 40 years pass. In that 40 year period, all the came out of Egypt will die out, except for the two good spies and those below the age of 20. So four years later was a new nation, a nation that was born as freemen in the desert and not the slaves in Egypt that were able to enter the land under Joshua. And, um, and again, they will have to do with physical judgment. Even Moses, remember, had to die outside the land because of a sin he committed. It did not affect his individual salvation. He now had to pay the physical consequences of rebelling, of rebelling against God's word, and uh, therefore would also have to die outside the land. Now, the second time this happens is in the days of Manasseh. Manasseh was the most cruel king Jerusalem ever had. During his uh, reign, he, he was able to murder many believers of that day. He turned the temple compound into a very center of idolatry. And while many previous big, wicked kings did the same thing, he went beyond them and began to practice human sacrifice. And finally, a point of no return was reached, and God decreed the Babylonian destruction of the city and the first temple and the 70 years of captivity. And once again, once a point of no return is reached, no amount of repenting can change the fact of physical judgment. So the Exodus generation, Numbers chapter 14, says the people repented. Verse 20 even says God did forgive their sin. It didn't affect anyone's salvation. 
better pay the physical consequences of going beyond the point of no return. And now with Manasseh, towards the end of his life, he did come to faith. He became a believing king. He was followed by the righteous rule of King Josiah, who brought revival throughout the land. But God simply said he will not bring on the calamity in Josiah's day, but the calamity itself is now inevitable. A point of no return is reached. And not long after Josiah's death, the, the, Pharaohs, the um, Babylonians came. And now for the third time in Matthew 12, a specific generation goes beyond the point of no return. It will not matter how many Jews will come to faith, and we know that myriads of Jews did come to faith. It will not change the coming judgment that will hit in the year A.D. 70, because the point of no return has been reached. After hearing these words of rebuke and judgment, the Pharisees tried to retake the offensive in verse 38. Then certain scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we would see a sign from you. They come asking for yet another sign, implying he hadn't done enough to authenticate his messiahship. But at this point of time, he performed numerous miracles, including miracles never done before. And so, and so there was sufficient evidence of his claims. So in verses 39 and 40, he announces a new policy concerning his signs. Until the events of Matthew 12, his signs were for the benefit of the masses. But now he will perform miracles only by responding in a different way. So for the nation, he says, for the nation, there'll be no more signs except one sign, the sign of Jonah, the sign of resurrection. And uh, it will come to Israel three different times. The resurrection of Lazarus, the resurrection of the Messiah, and the resurrection of the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. That's the only sign he will still give them publicly. But for the nation as a nation, no more signs except one sign, the sign of Jonah, the sign of resurrection. Then he continues with the theme that was interrupted, the theme of judgment. But now notice the, the focus on this specific generation. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh shall stand up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. Verse 42, the queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment with this generation and shall condemn it. He now brings in two Gentile examples from the Hebrew Bible. Gentiles who had a lot less light to respond to, but they did respond to lesser light. And so the great white throne judgment, these Gentiles would be able to witness against this generation for being guilty of rejecting the greater light and being guilty of the unpardonable sin. The words of judgment come to a conclusion in verses 43, 44, and 45. It's a story about a demon that was indwelling a person, but then chose to leave. It was not cast out. He simply left in his own free will, looking for a better flat in which to live. He searches for a while, but he can find no vacancies. So he chooses to come back to the person who was indwelling earlier. And in verse 44, when he finds him again, he finds him swept, he finds him garnished. Notice at the same time, he finds him still empty. Because in the interval period, he was never indwelled by some other spirit, be it the Holy Spirit or a demonic spirit. So because he stayed empty, this demon is able to go back in. He doesn't want to live by himself anymore. 
he invites seven of his friends to join him. And in verse 45, the, the, um, the, he, the Yeshua declares, Jesus declares that in the last state, his, his situation is worse than the first. At the beginning, he only had one demon in him. Because he stayed empty, he now has eight demons in him. Now, the point of the story is often missed. The point is made in the very end of verse 45. Even so, will it be also unto this evil generation? Notice again the focus on this generation. When this generation began, it began with the preaching of John the Baptist. And the calling of John was to, to prepare them for the acceptance of the Messiahship of Jesus. And by means of the mystery of John, this generation was swept this generation was garnished. But now with rejecting him on the basis of being demonized, they remain empty. And because they remain empty, the last state will be worse than the first. At the first, under Roman domination, had to pay annual tribute to Rome. Rome allowed them to retain their national entity. Jerusalem was standing, the temple was functioning in all of its heroic glory. They even had a semi-autonomous government in the Sanhedrin. But now, 40 years after these words are spoken, the legions of Rome invade the country. After a four-year war and a two-year siege, the city was destroyed, the temple torn down till there was not one stone on top of another, and the people dispersed around the world, and the last state of that generation became worse than the first. So moving down to point three, the four results, now's ministry changes in four important areas. The first change is what I mentioned a few moments ago, the purpose of his signs and wonders. No longer will the purpose be to serve as signs for Israel. Now the purpose is to train the apostles for their future work in the book of Acts. We can summarize it this way. His signs go from um, the nation, from the multitudes to the apostles. The second result is that until this point, he performed miracles for the benefit of the multitudes. He did not require them to have faith first. One key example is found in John chapter 5 in the healing of the man in the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus simply approached the man on his own will and healed him. The man did, the, and the man, number one, did not know who Jesus was. Number two, he didn't know he claimed, who he claimed to be. And thirdly, um, there was no faith on his part. And uh, later he had to find out who was it. But at that point of time, he was not a believer and didn't know what was happening. He was simply healed. At that point, faith would not be essential for these miracles to occur. They were there to get them to believe. That will change after Matthew 12. From now on, perform miracles only by meeting the needs of individuals. And now he will require them to have faith first. We can summarize it this way. He goes from, miracles go from multitudes without faith to individuals with faith. Also, as part of the second result, whenever he healed a person at the, up to this point, he told the person, go and proclaim what God has done for you. But after Matthew 12, every time he heals someone, he tells them, don't tell anyone what God has done for you. He initiates a policy of silence, and those who benefit from his messianic power are prohibited from telling one, anyone about it. See, so we can summarize, he goes from tell all to tell no one. The th and the third result is the message that he and the apostles will now be proclaiming. 
Until this point, whenever he taught the people publicly, he always taught them clearly and distinctly in ways they could and did understand. And one key example is found in, in uh, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And when he's finished making that sermon, Matthew points out that people understood exactly what he had to say, and most significantly, he, they knew exactly where he differed with the scribes and Pharisees. But now whenever he will tell it, now he prohibits anyone to proclaim his messiahship. So Matthew 16, when Peter makes his famous confession and says, you are the Messiah, the son of the God, the living one. Messiah tells Peter, don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah. And they too has followed the new policy of silence until that will be rescinded in Matthew chapter 28 with the Great Commission. And so we can summarize it this way. He goes from proclamation about his messiahship to silence about his messiahship. And the fourth change has to do with his method of teaching. Until these events, when he taught them publicly, he taught them in ways that they could and did understand. But from now on, he will begin teaching them in a new way. Now look at chapter 13, verse 1. 13, 1, on that day, on what day? On the day that the rejection occurred, on that day when the unpardonable sin was committed, on that day, says verse 3, he spoke to them many things in parables. And from now on, when he teaches parabolic, when he teaches publicly, it'll be parabolically, teaching in terms that he cannot, what people will not be able to understand. So in verse 10, for example, when disciples ask him, why are you teaching them in parables? It shows they were not used to, him, used to him teaching that way. He points out the two main reasons for the parabolic method of teaching. First of all, for the believer, the purpose will be to illustrate the truth. That's for the apostles. But for the masses, the purpose will be to hide the truth, to teach them in terms they cannot and will not understand. But now they receive sufficient light to respond correctly. They responded incorrectly with the unpardonable sin, and now no further light would be given to them. Now go down to verse 34, chapter 12, verse 34. All these things spoke Jesus in parables unto the multitudes. And notice, without a parable spake he nothing unto them. Now this is not a true statement before Matthew 12. It's going to be absolutely true after Matthew 12. Whenever he teaches, he'll always teach parabolically. So no one understands, even the apostles did not understand. But when he's alone with the apostles, he'll explain the meaning to them. So verse 36 says, and then he left the multitudes and went to the house, and the disciples asked, came to him, saying, Explain unto us the parable of the tares of the field. So they themselves don't understand these parables. But when he's alone with them, he'll explain the meaning of these parables, because for them the purpose will be to illustrate the truth. Unless we see how important the events of Matthew 12 and 13 are, we'll, we'll, we won't quite understand the rest of the Gospels. But things change, and so in, the, in major areas of change, for example, from, from chapter 12, 13, the end of the Gospels, he, from now on, he teaches only parabolically, and whenever he, um, 
If now we, there's no kingdom、uh, offer anymore, no kingdom preaching anymore, and he would, and other areas had changed. And so the stages for Jewish history for the next two thousand years. It sets the stage for the second half of his ministry. It sets the stage for the events of the Book of Acts. Some key major changes as a result of what happens here. Now turn to chapter 16, because even after Matthew 12 and 13, now and then they come asking for a sign. But after Matthew 12, his answer remained the same. So, in verse one of chapter 16, and the Pharisees and Sadducees came, trying him, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Not as from heaven, but if he gives a sign of any kind, well, that's from Beelzebub. The first response is in verse four: an evil. An adulterous generation. Notice again the focus on the generation seeks after a sign, and there shall no sign be given to it, but the sign of Jonah. He left them and departed. That'll be his constant answer. After Matthew 12 and 13, for the nation there'll be no more signs except one sign, and that sign will be the only sign I'll give them publicly. With that background, let's turn to John 11. In John 11, we're given a lot of detail—44 verses worth of detail dealing with the resurrection of Lazarus. Let's keep in mind this is not the first resurrection that he that he performs, but the previous resurrections are covered from maybe two up to four verses. They're witnessed to only by a few, and the few witness it are then told to tell no one about it. But in sharp contrast, in the case of Lazarus, he gives us a lot of detail—44 verses worth of detail. Instead of being witnessed only by a few, this one is witnessed to by the many. The multitudes are present, observing this event happening. Now, and what makes this resurrection unique is that this is the one sign he promised to give the people publicly. And when this sign is given, they will need to respond. And once we understand the role the resurrection of Lazarus resurrection plays. In the relationship of Yeshua of Jesus as Israel's Messiah, we'll be able to understand why things happen the way they do. Now, verses one through six, a message comes to the、um, to the Messiah about,、uh, from the two sisters, informing him that Lazarus is ill, and the intent was to have him come quickly to Bethany to heal Lazarus before he dies. Where he was at this point of time, geographically speaking, would be only a one-day walk to Bethany. He had plenty of time to get there in time. You expect to read when he when he heard about the illness, he departed for Bethany. But notice what verse six says: When therefore, when what for? When therefore he heard that he was sick, he abode at that time two days in the place where he was. For the very reason you're about the illness, he doesn't go anywhere. He's literally waiting for Lazarus to die. Only after Lazarus dies in verses 13 through 15 does he begin moving towards Bethany. Even so, he walks rather slow, and so what should have been done only one day, it took him four days to get to Bethany. But the mention of the four days of deadness is significant, because the common teaching in Judaism of that day was this: 
When a person dies, the spirit of the person hovers over the body for three days. And so during the three days of hovering, there's a small possibility of a resuscitation. But at the end of the third day, the spirit descended down to Sheol Hades, and from then on, a resuscitation is impossible. Only by miracle of resurrection can a man live again. So because this was to be a public sign to that generation, the Messiah set the stage in such a way so this could not be explained away by mere resuscitation. He's been dead, Lazarus has been dead for one day too many. Often in the commentaries and teachings on this chapter, people focus on his love for Mary and Martha. There's no question that was part of it. But it's always wise to look at the immediate context to see what is the primary reason for what he says or what he does. So skip down to verse 42. And in verse 42, I know that you hear me always, but because of the multitude that stand around, I said it, that they, may, that they, the multitude, may believe that you did send me. The primary purpose, notice, of raising Lazarus is for the benefit of the multitude, for the benefit of that generation. And this is the one sign he promised to give them publicly. And when this sign is given, they will need to respond. So verses 45 and 46, we see the two responses. In verse 45, many Jewish people respond correctly and do believe on him. But the second response is in verse 46, but some of them went away to Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. While many Jews on one hand do believe, many others still laboring under the leadership complex simply report what Jesus just did to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees know that this is the one sign he promised to give them. He was speaking to them when he made the promise, and therefore they do need to respond. And so in verse 47, the Sanhedrin gathers together, both the Pharisees and the Sadducean members of the Sanhedrin. In the course of their deliberations in verses 48 to 52, 48 to 52, they choose to go one step beyond the events of Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, they simply rejected him on the grounds of being demonized. But now in John 11, they go a step further and sentence him to death. And this decision of putting him to death is found in verse 53. From that day forth, they took counsel, they might put him to death. And that decision begins to filter down to the Jewish multitudes. And verse 57 says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given commandment that if any man knew where he was, they should, he should show it that they might take him. And this action by the Sanhedrin led to the official rejection of the first sign of Jonah. Now we'll go to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. The context of the verses we're about to read is the context of the triumphal entry. And literally, myriads of Jewish people are conducting him to, into Jerusalem, crying out, Hosanna, more correct, Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That statement in the first century Judaism was the official messianic greeting. And rabbis were teaching, if the Messiah comes, he must be welcomed with those very words. 
For it comes out of Messianic Psalm in the Hebrew Bible, Psalm 118 and verse 26. Psalm 118 and verse 26. So when they are yelling these words and proclaiming him to be the Messiah, one might think that conditions or situations could change, but the unpardonable sin has already been committed. So because of its unpardonableness, in spite of these messianic proclamations, the words of the Messiah remain words of judgment. Look at verse 41. And when he drew nigh, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day even the things which belong unto peace, but now they are hid from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies shall cast up a bank about you and compass you round about and keep you in every side and shall dash you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone on top of another because you did not know the time of your visitation. In spite of the messianic acclamations, the words of the Messiah are still words of judgment. They already have crossed the point of no return, and no amount of repenting can change the fact of coming physical judgment. Forty years after these words were spoken, they were quite literally fulfilled. Now go back to Matthew's Gospel, but now chapter 23. This chapter is only one theme from beginning to end, Messiah's denunciation of Israel's leadership, the scribes and Pharisees. He pronounces seven woes upon the Pharisees, but the, uh, but the seven woes form a circle because the first woe and, and the seventh woe will deal with the same sin. And the first woe is in verse 13. And here they're condemned for two reasons. Number one, they are rejecting his messiahship, but secondly, they're lead, leading the nation to reject his messiahship as well. And what he says here will be elaborated up with the seventh woe in verses 29 through 36. But now he pronounces an, a key judgment that because of his rejection, they'll be held accountable for the whole body of revealed written truth. Because at this point, he's been fulfilling prophecies of the Hebrew Bible, and still they found reasons to reject him. Now keep in mind that the, when he speaks of the prophets and, the, and so on, uh, he's using the order that you find in the Jewish Bibles, not in the Christian Bibles. Now the, the number of books between the Jewish and Christian Old Testament is the same, but the order is not the same. The first book is the same Genesis, but the second book is not Malachi, but Second Chronicles. Now notice in verse 35, he names two men, Abel found in the first book, Genesis, and then Zechariah, which is found in the last book of the Jewish order in Second Chronicles. And by naming these two men, he tells them you'll be held accountable for everything from Genesis to Second Chronicles a Jewish figure of speech meaning the whole body of revealed written truth, similar in the way we would say it from Genesis to Revelation, our, uh, our figure of speech for the whole body of revealed written truth. And now look at verse 36. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon, there's our two words again, this generation. This generation guilty of the unpardonable sin will now be held accountable for the whole body 
of revealed written truth. A few days after stating these words will come the second sign of Jonah, the resurrection of the Messiah himself. But the second sign of Jonah will be rejected in the first seven chapters of the book of Acts. And the stoning of Stephen by the Sanhedrin marked the official rejection of the second sign of Jonah. That's why only as of Acts 8 does the gospel for the first time, first, first time go out to non-Jews. The first seven chapters are stayed within that Jewish frame of reference. Now the point that I've made so far then is the leadership of Israel rejected him as the Messiah and explained his unique abilities by the fact that he was possessed by the prince of demons. In light of that then, what is the precondition of second coming? What must happen before the Messiah can return? So go to the second page of the outline and turn to the book of Leviticus, chapter 26. Leviticus, chapter 26. In this chapter, Moses outlines what would end up being Jewish history. When he first wrote it, it was all prophecy. But most of the chapter has been fulfilled in the course of Jewish history. He points out that when the Jewish people entered the land, they'll fall into periods of disobedience, they'll bring on three different forms of divine discipline. First of all, it comes subjugation, which was fulfilled in the days of the judges. Secondly, will come captivity fulfilled by the Babylonian and the Assyrian back captivities. But thirdly, will come a worldwide dispersion which came as a direct result for rejecting the prophet like unto Moses, the prophet described in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18. Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 through 18. So by the end of uh, verse uh, 39, the worldwide dispersion is a fact. And the first 39 verses of this chapter have now been fulfilled. Now we come to verse 40. And they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of the fathers in the trespass which they trespassed against me. And, be, and also because they were contrary unto me, also were contrary unto them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart be humbled, and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity, then will I remember my covenant with uh, Jacob, and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham, and I remember them, and I will remember the land. Notice in verse 42, God says his every intention of fulfilling to Israel the promises of the Abrahamic covenant, in particular as to how this covenant affects uh, Israel's, Israel's boredom. I will remember the land. But the enjoyment of all of the full blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, to enjoy all the promised land, is preconditioned by verse 40. They shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers. Notice the word iniquity is singular. With a specific definite article, it is, a it is an iniquity that was committed by their fathers, by their ancestors, and then continued by them, that must be confessed before they can enjoy all of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. So the, the issue is confessing one key sin that was committed by their ancestors and continued by them that must be confessed 
before they can finally enjoy all of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. Now we'll go to Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, Jeremiah lists some of the blessings the Jewish people finally get to enjoy in the Messianic kingdom. So in verse 14, the Jews will be gathered one by one until every Jew is back in the land of Zion. In verse 15, in that day, God will give them righteous shepherds, righteous leaders, that will feed them with knowledge and understanding and not be guilty of leading the nation astray as has been committed in the past. In verse 16, he, they won't so much as even think of rebuilding the Ark of the Covenant because in verse 17, God himself in visible form in the person of the Messiah will be ruling from the city of Jerusalem. And in verse 18, the Jews will be so reunited so as not to be split into two Jewish kingdoms again. For the enjoyment of all of these millennial conditions in verses 14 through 18 are preconditioned by verse 13. Only confess your iniquity that you transgressed against Yahweh God. Again, iniquity is singular, specific. There's one specific sin that must be confessed before they can even begin to enjoy these blessings of the Messianic kingdom which in turn is a development and fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now we'll go ahead and turn to Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12. The last three chapters of Zechariah chapters 12, 13, and 14 is one unit one basic uh, prophecy that God gave. Now, chapter 13 deals with the cleansing of Israel's sins. And chapter 14 deals with two other things. The second coming in chapter 14, verses 1 through 15. And then the Messianic kingdom in verses 16 to 21. However, the uh, second coming and kingdom chapter 14, the cleansing of Israel's sins in chapter 13 are all preconditioned by chapter 12, verse 10. And verse 10 says, I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. They shall look unto me whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for his only son, and shall be in bitterness for him as one who is in bitterness for his firstborn. Before there can be a national cleansing of Israel's sins, a second coming and kingdom, what must happen first is Israel looking unto the one whom they previously pierced, to mourn for him until, as one will mourn for an only son. Until chapter 12, verse 10 is fulfilled, the prophecies of chapter 13 and 14 cannot be fulfilled. Now we go to the first minor prophet, Hosea chapter 5. Hosea chapter 5. Throughout the fifth chapter of Hosea, God is speaking. God still keep speaking as we come to verse 15 where God says, I will go 
and return to my place until they confess their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. Before you can return to a place, you must first leave it. After leaving it, you can then return to it. Here God says he's going to return to his place, and God's place is heaven. Before he can return to heaven, he must first leave it. And when did God ever leave heaven? He left heaven at the incarnation, when God became man in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. But then because of an offense committed against him, and again the word offense is singular and specific, because of one specific offense committed against him, he then returned to heaven when he ascended from the Mount of Olives. The verse goes on to point out that he will not come back to the earth until this offense is confessed, adding the warning, in their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. And again, that's to be a national confession before you can come back to them. Now keep your finger here in Hosea. We'll come back to Hosea momentarily. And for now, let's turn to the passage we left a few moments ago, Matthew chapter 23. In this chapter, a few moments ago, noting that this is Messiah's renunciation of the spiritual leaders of that day for leading nation to reject him. And with this chapter, he closes with public ministry. After this, he only worked with the disciples until his arrest. When it comes to a close, he closes with a lament in verses 37 through 39. And in verse 37, he summarizes his ministry to Israel, how often he longed to spread his hands out and give the city the messianic protection predicted by the prophets. But the verse ends, ye would not. Literally, they wilted not when they rejected him. So now in verse 38, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. The house is the temple, now destined to be destroyed 40 years hence. But then notice in verse 39, for I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth, till ye shall say, Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And again, as we mentioned a few moments ago, this is the official messianic greeting. And they would not say these words and applying them to Jesus until they meant that they accepted him to be the messianic king after all. And here lays down the precondition to the second coming. Just as leaders once led the nation to reject him, a day will have to come when the Jewish leaders will lead the nation to accept him. And so, capital B on the outline, there are two basic elements to the basis of the second coming, two things that must happen. Number one, they must finally accept him to be the messianic king, to look unto the one whom they once pierced. But then secondly, to mourn for him as one mourns for only son and to plead for him to return. So first of all, undergo a national salvation, and secondly, to plead for his return. Until these two things occur, there will be no second coming. Let's go back to Hosea. Look at now chapter 6. Verses 1 through 
There we have a place where chapter got divided where it should not have been. The new context begins down in chapter 6, verse 4, and verses 1, 2, and 3 belong with chapter 5. And in chapter 5, verse 15, we noted that the, he will not come back to this earth until that offense is confessed. And verses 1, 2, and 3 of chapter 6 is the Jewish response to the demands of 5.15. The words are the words of a call or decree, such as would be issued by leaders. Come, let's return unto Jehovah. He had torn, and he will heal us. He had smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us, and the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live before him. Let us know, let us follow one to know the, know the Lord. He's going forth to show us the morning, and he will come unto us as the rain, as the latter rain that waters the earth. In the closing days of the tribulation, in connection with Armageddon, which is the affliction of 515, the Jewish elders will finally realize why they have suffered all these things and what they must now do. They will then issue this call to national repentance. And when this call is issued, that will trigger the last three days before the second coming. And for the first two of these last three days, they'll confess the national sin. And the word they will use is what's on your outline, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 9. Isaiah 53 is often recognized to be the most detailed um, prophecy of Messiah's death and resurrection, but it's more than that. As you read the first nine verses of this chapter, you'll notice that this is Israel as a people confessing the sin of failing to recognize him and confessing the rejection of him and now accepting him. And that will be the essence of their confession as a nation. And then, the second, and then on the third day, the whole nation will come to faith. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 8, the nation will be born in one day. Jeremiah, um, Zechariah chapter 3, verse 8, the nation, God will forgive the iniquity of the land in one day. Romans 11, verses 24, uh, 25 and 26, all is will be saved. When the whole nation comes to faith, they will then move to fulfill the second part of the requirement, and that is to plead for the Messiah to return. And the words of the pleading are found in the last three passages on your outline, Isaiah 64, Psalm 79, and Psalm 80. Israel pleading for God to rescue them from a dangerous predicament. We'll look, just for, we'll look at just a few segments of Psalm 80. Psalm 80. The first three verses provides us with the theme of the whole psalm. Verse 1, give air or shepherd of Israel, you that leads Joseph like a flock, you that sits above the cherubim shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh stir up your might and come to save us. Turn us again, O God, and cause that your face to shine and we shall be saved. That's the theme. And the whole psalm is Israel pleading to God to rescue them from a dangerous predicament. But skip down to verse 17, still addressing the prayer to God, and notice what they're asking for specifically. Let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. The one they're asking for is the one at the right hand of God the Father. 
And that's none other than Jesus the Messiah, the Son of Man, who's been sitting there at the right hand of God the Father ever since his ascension from the Mount of Olives. But they will come at the Jewish request for him to do so. They'll stand up from that uh, where he now sits and come back to the earth, destroy the enemies of Israel, and finally bring in the Messianic kingdom, where Israel for the first time will enjoy all of the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant, as well as the other Jewish covenants, and finally enjoy all of the promised land, living in peace and enjoying the benefits. Now, from this study, let me make three specific applications. The first application is um, to understand clearly the basis of the second coming, and that there has to be a national salvation before Israel can, can respond by confessing the sin and also pleading for the Messiah to return. And this provides us with the, with the basis of anti-Semitism, because Satan knows what Jews must do before Messiah can return. He also knows that Messiah will not come back until the Jewish people ask him to come back. So if he can destroy the Jewish people once and for all, before they have the opportunity to be saved and plead for Messiah's return, then there'll be no second coming and Satan's career will be safe forever. And that's why he's always had the special war against the Jews at the time of Abraham. So that's why things like the Crusades occurred. That's why the Russian pogroms occurred. That's why the Nazi Holocaust occurred. And that's why in Revelation chapter 14, excuse me, Revelation chapter 12, we learn that once Satan is confined to the earth for the second half of the tribulation, he will now organize a Nazi-like, but a worldwide Nazi-like effort to try to wipe out every Jewish person at that point of time. To, uh, to, uh, because if he can do so, there'll be no second coming. The second application we can make is this. We'll understand why he's used one name more than any other name to persecute Jews. Since the fourth century, 90% of all persecutions were done in the name of the three C's, the church, the cross, and Christ. 90%. Because Satan knows the name they have to call upon to bring him back, and so he has uh, developed a strategy to make the name odious in the Jewish community. And so it has become odious, but not because they know who Jesus is from the New Testament. They're responding to the events of church uh, history with so much persecution in this one name. Why should any Jew want to even think about believing under one who, whose name killed relatives and aunts and uncles and parents and siblings and things of that nature? And so that is still a key strategy that he uses. And Jews have suffered more in so-called Christian countries than, say, in Muslim countries. There's been persecution there well as well, but not anywhere as severe as in so-called Christianized countries. And this brings on the third application, why we need to both practice Jewish evangelism and support Jewish evangelism. Because part of Jewish evangelism requires us in dealing with making a separation between uh, Jesus the Messiah and from the Christ of church history. And until a Jewish person can separate those two concepts in his mind, it will be difficult for him to begin accepting the possibility that this Jesus could be the Messiah. And therefore, 
Um, we must uh, practice Jewish evangelism, support those doing Jewish evangelism, because we have to have a double um, stumbling block before we can get to the real point why we need to believe in this one to be the Messiah. And thankfully, in Jewish evangelism, many Jews have come to faith. The various branches of our ministries, there's been a constant effort and good success in winning the Jewish people to the Messiah. We have a long way to go yet, and this is what God has called us to do. A book I haven't mentioned before is this one called Israel Betrayed. This is called The History of Replacement Theology. This is the best book I've seen. We didn't write it, we just printed it. It was published by a, by a British pastor who died a couple of years ago, Andrew D. D. Robinson. And um, he deals in historic history from the second century onward, all of the examples of, um, of uh, anti-Semitism using the church. And this will again show you why so many Jewish people respond so negatively to Christianity because of its history. So if you, this is, I've read different books on replacement theology. This is by far the most uh, detailed, easy to read, but the most detailed, and that's available at the back table. Okay, I'm going to tell you another story. It's a Jewish story, not a rabbi story, as we close. And that's a story that illustrates the, uh, the Jewish community today, which is very, very secular. So only about 20% of the Jewish population practices orthodox traditional Judaism, but 80% would class themselves to be either atheistic or agnostic. All my cousins, aunts and uncles, aunts and uncles already passed away, but all my cousins in Israel who are very Zionistic, have all raised in a very Hasidic environment, all became atheists. And that's typical of much of Israeli society. This is the story of a Jewish family, a secular family that moved into a new neighborhood, and the next door neighbors happened to be a Baptist family. And both families had sons about the same age, so two sons became friends. And one day the Jewish son asked the Baptist son, would he like to go to Sunday school with him? The Jewish son asked his parents, the parents were a bit nervous about this, but they didn't want to make it too big of an issue since they were not practicing Jews. So they made a compromise and said, okay, you can go this one time. When you come back, you'll have to tell us everything they taught you at that school, just in case we have to give you another perspective. The two sons went to the um, Sunday school class, so when they came back to their homes, the Jewish parents asked the Jewish son, what did they teach you about in that Baptist school? And he said, well, they taught us all about Moses. Moses? Really? What did they say about Moses? And the son answered, well, he, what they taught us is that once the Jews, Moses began leading the Jews out of Egypt, the Egyptian army began to chase the Jews. So Moses did was build a pontoon bridge across the Red Sea, and the Jewish community ran across the pontoon bridge. And when the Egyptian army tried to follow the Jews, Moses called for an airstrike and destroyed the bridge and saved the Jews. The Jewish parents were a bit surprised and asked, is that what they taught you in that Baptist school? And the son says, well, that's not quite the way they put it. If I told you what they really said, you'd never believe it. <laughs> and that illustrates the Jewish community this day. I'm finished. All right. <laughs> Your timing is impeccable.